let's open our Bibles, Daniel chapter 5. Daniel 5, just a reminder if uh, you're wondering how to navigate to the book of Daniel, uh, the easiest way, of course, is to go to the front of the Bible index and find it there. Uh, but the second easiest way is to open your Bible to the midway point. You'll get to the Psalms, and you go Proverbs, Song of Solomon's, Ecclesiastes. You come to these major prophets, Isaiah, Ezekiel, or Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and then you hit Daniel. So Daniel chapter 5 is where we're at. All right, let me ask you a question. What does it feel like to be sidelined? Uh, This is an experience that people have gone through, and it's a hard experience. It can happen at work. It can happen in the family. It can happen amongst friendships. In the world of sports, uh, this is that athlete who was competing at a center level. They were in the action, and then suddenly it seems like they're off to the periphery. They're on the bench, and probably the hardest part is the athlete doesn't know why. The coach and the other players won't explain it to them. What does that look like in the real world? Well, in the world of work, it can look like no longer being assigned the big projects. Uh, In friendships, it might have something to do with social engagements happening, and it seems like for whatever reason, less and less invites are coming your way. Uh, in In the world of your family, it can be that There tends to be these sidebar conversations, and and you just find out that people have been talking and they haven't been including you. Why? Well, being sidelined can happen for a couple of reasons. (laughs) One reason is uh, you may be suffering with the frog in the boiling water syndrome. Now, uh, you might know this about frogs, but you put a frog in water, if you slowly increase the temperature, the frog's skin doesn't detect the elevation of temperature, so you can literally slow boil a frog. Well, similarly, people in relationships might struggle in the sense that they're creating wakes in their relationships, and they don't have the self-awareness to see that there are a lot of arrows pointing in one direction in friendships. And so people pull back, and they don't know why. But there's another reason that sidelining happens. And, and it can happen because of what you represent. Have you noticed more and more today that people keep their political leanings private? And, and one of the big reasons for that is people today feel fear repercussions. If I tell people which political aisle I find myself on, I might be affected because of that. It's also happening in the religious arena. More and more, we're told that our religious ideas have no place in public discourse. We shouldn't talk about it. If you believe in unicorns, that's fine. You can do that on your own. But don't bring up your religious leanings in public spaces. So here's the big question. How do you live by good faith when that faith might get you sidelined? You know you're not the first believer to experience this in history? Did you know that Daniel experienced this? That's right, Daniel! Like the same Daniel that at 17 finds himself at the center of the Babylonian court, that same Daniel who is the right-hand guy of King Nebuchadnezzar, that Daniel gets sidelined. Now how did that happen? 
Well, that's what we're going to see this morning as we look at the text. So let's begin by just looking at the first uh, verse, Daniel chapter 5, verse 1. The text picks up like this, King Belshazzar made a great feast for thousands of his lords. Now, pump the brakes a second. A lot has happened between Daniel chapter 4 and Daniel chapter 5. Like, first of all, who in the world is King Belshazzar? We've been reading about King Nebuchadnezzar, and all of a sudden, this guy appears on the scene. Well, the date now is October 11th, 539 B.C. This is some 30 years after the events of Daniel chapter 4. And you remember, in that chapter, as James summarized for us, Nebuchadnezzar thought he was godlike, so God determined that he was going to make him believe that he was cow-like. He humbled the man. And Nebuchadnezzar responded with repentance. But at this point, he's been dead for some 23 years. And I'm not going to bore you with all of the details, but suffice it to say, since his death, there have been four kings. Two of those kings have ended their reign due to assassination. And now, Belshazzar is on the throne, and, and he's really not even the king. He is serving as a regent for his father, Nabonidus, who has not set foot in Babylonian, Babylon proper for some 10 years at this point. So he's like a regent, but everyone calls him king because all of the power and the decisions in Babylon are going through him. There's another thing that you might not realize. As Belshazzar is putting this grand feast together, Outside the gates of Babylon right now is the Medes and the Persians, a colossal army. They have just defeated Nabonidus, and uh, he's gone on the run, and they're outside. Now, who in the world throws a party like this when an invasive, colossal force like that is looking to get inside? And there's also one other minor detail that they don't tell us. This big who's who party? has a lot of people on the invite list, but one person is not found on the list. Guess who? Daniel. Well, the confusion continues. Let's look at verses 2 to 4. Uh, Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the gold vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them, and they drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So in those couple of verses, Daniel is showing us something really important that's happened in Babylon. Babylon has lost its moral sanity. They've lost it. In chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar comes to the realization that God is the Lord of the most, he's the most high God, he's the God of gods, and now you see Belshazzar doing this egregious act against God. They have lost their moral sanity. What happened to Daniel? Well, I don't know exactly when Daniel was sidelined, but I think I can gather as to why. It seems that after Nebuchadnezzar died, there was this resurgence back to the pantheon of the Babylonian gods. 
uh, Belshazzar in particular, seems to want the Babylonians to go back to those old ways. There also seems to be an ethnic element to this. You see, it appears that Daniel was sidelined because he was Jewish. He was a part of this ignoble, defeated people. Why would we put him at the center making central decisions for Babylon? I wonder what that feels like. I mean, think about that. From the age of 17 to the age of 57, Daniel is at the center of it all. He, he's the guy that when there's a problem, he's not just brought in and, 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 and consulted with as one among many voices. No, Daniel was the guy that you brought in when no one else knew what to do. That kind of center person. And now, he's old news. He's 80 years old. He's a has-been. History has been steadily moving along, and somehow Daniel found himself on the outside. And as a result, culture has been running headlong away from God. You see, Belshazzar is so emboldened that he does what no other superstitious king in this day and age would have done. He literally spits in the eye of a god by offering up that god's artifact in worship to another god. He's, he's basically proudly standing up in front of the room and he's saying, I'm not afraid of the Persians. I'm so confident in myself, I'm so secure in myself that I will even stand in opposition to the God that Nebuchadnezzar was afraid of. You see what he's doing here? Daniel's at the periphery. Belshazzar is leading Babylon again into moral oblivion. And we noted several weeks ago that the, the Christian presence acts like salt and light. Remember Jesus said that to us, that you are the salt of the earth, you're the light of the world, that that, that presence does two things. It shines light onto the darkness of culture, and it also serves to preserve culture. So what happens when that presence is removed? Well, when the Christian presence or the godly presence is removed from culture, there is this iron law that sets in. I call it the iron law of moral entropy. What is that? It's that natural gravitation towards moral darkness. It sets in. You know, maybe as a believer today, you're starting to sense that more and more because of your faith, you're getting sidelined. For some of you, it, it might not be that feeling or that sense happening on a personal level, meaning you're not experiencing it per se in your friendships or in your family relationships or at work, but many of you are. But for some of us, it's just more of that large-scale feeling of being sidelined, where maybe two decades ago, the, the normal Orthodox Christian positions were considered mainstream, but today they are no longer mainstreamed. In fact, you're told that if you hold to these orthodox positions, that you're going to find yourself on the wrong side of history. And it's, just, it's not just one area. It's all kinds of areas. 
It's our view of biblical marriage, sexuality, gender identity, our high value on life, and not just life in the womb, but life from womb all the way to tomb, our belief in the supernatural. And may it always be true of us, our biblical position of justice, our care for the poor, our concern for the immigrants. It's interesting, um, today in the world that we live in, culture has decided that those things are all political positions. I got to tell you, they're not political positions, they're biblical positions. And, and we should never relegate them to the realm of politics because the, the Jesus voice stands apart from politics. It doesn't take a democratic position or a Republican position. It cares about Jesus' agenda because we believe that Jesus is king. And so as believers, we have to understand that when we take on Jesus' agenda, that there's a strong chance that we might get sidelined for it. Didn't our Lord say that? He said it in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil things about you falsely on account of who? Me. Which means it's not even necessarily anything to do with you, but it's more about people are rejecting Jesus' right to make the rules. Now, why should good faith Christians care about God's moral will? Should we care because we have a sanctimonious attitude? We say, oh, yeah, you know, the truth matters. I know the truth, and I'm morally superior, intrinsically so. I just have that it factor that let me know what is right, and no one else knows what's right but me. No. That's such a bad attitude. And it, it completely misses the point that the gospel's making, which the gospel says, look, you're fundamentally flawed, and if it wasn't for a dramatic intervention of God through Jesus, you would continue to be fundamentally flawed. No, we come at it from the position of Jesus who said, love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor. The sanctimonious attitude never shows anyone love. There's a way to be right in the wrong way. And we don't want to do that. So why do we care about God's moral will? Well, we care about God's moral will because we care about people. And our Creator designed us holistically. What does that mean? He cares about us physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually. And if He cares about all of those things, then we have to understand that the way that He designed the moral laws of the universe affect all of those things. And it also affects our relationships, our friendship relationships, family relationships, work relationships, community relationships. God designed the universe that when we obey His moral will, then human flourishing results. And when we turn away from His moral will, then it tends that humans suffer. So we care about these things. We love these things because we love people. Our hearts are meant to beat and bleed for people because our Creator's heart beats and bleeds for people. Well, let's go back to the story. Remember, Belshazzar is taking this morally insane position He's blaspheming against God. 
and this leads to a direct confrontation. Sometimes when you call God out, God shows up. Verses 5 and 6. Immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. Opposite the lampstand, the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. So what does Belshazzar do? He's terrified. He's having these physical effects of terror. Well, he does what other Babylonian kings did. He calls in the experts, and yet again, the experts have no idea what to do. So the king's mother, or the queen mother, she breaks protocol. She hears about all of this, and she breaks protocol. Normally, the king would call the queen mother in, but she just comes right into the throne room and reminds him of a Jewish exile that he's forgotten about. Now, this queen mother, most commentators believe, is actually Nebuchadnezzar's wife. She says this in verse 11, "'There's a man in your kingdom who has within him a spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, he proved to have insight, discernment, and wisdom like that of the gods.'" Now, think about that. Here Daniel is, 80 years old, 23 years outside of the center, probably asking himself questions like, is God done with me? Does God have any plan for my life? I haven't been at the center for some time. What good am I to Babylonian society or my people for that matter anymore? But here's the thing. Just as easily as you can be sidelined, God can put you back in the game. Don't ever, ever, ever believe that while you are still breathing, that God is finished with you. Because he's never finished with you. As long as you are on this earth, God has a purpose for your life. And that purpose is not small in scope, but it aligns with his grand meta-narrative, his plan for salvation, for redeeming people through Jesus Christ. That's God's plan for you. And that plan continues each and every day while you're on this earth. So Daniel walks into the throne room. Now, Belshazzar is still a little skeptical. But... He's got no other options, so he offers him the same treasures that he offers to the other wise men. Daniel rejects him. Look at verse 17. He says, Let your gifts be for yourself, and, and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. Now, some commentators look at that exchange with Daniel, and they're like, Ah, he's gotten a little cantankerous in his older years. You know, he doesn't put up with stuff anymore. I don't think that's what's going on here. It's not in line with Daniel's character prior to this moment, and it's not in line with it later. No, what I understand Daniel is doing here is he's taking up the role of the prophet. And the prophet is never willing to commit a quid pro quo, if you will. They won't render a service on God's behalf for money because that says all of the wrong things. In fact, Balaam said this in the book of Numbers to the servants of Balak the king. He said, though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not go beyond the command of the Lord my God to do less or more. The point is that spiritual ministry can't be bought. Why? 
because God can't be bought. That's the big idea here. And it should remind us something very important about money. Money has all kinds of practical purposes. It serves all kinds of functions. But there's a lot of things that money just can't do. Too many people look at money as this kind of ultimate security in life. It is not ultimate. It can put food on the table. It can provide a house over your head. But no one ever paid a serious amount of money to make cancer go away. You can't spend yourself into a better relationship with your kids if that relationship has deteriorated. You can't fix your marriage by spending more. You know, God has given us money to be good stewards with it. And we find our greatest joy in stewarding that money when we align ourselves with God's good, generous purposes with it. So here we come back, and as I think about this story, I see a lot of courage in the way that Daniel deals with Belshazzar. Let me ask you about that virtue courage. What is it? Is it commonplace today? Why, why is courage so necessary in our world? You know, when, when people define courage, I hear a lot of ways that it's applied that, in my opinion, has nothing to do with courage. You, you think of courage sometimes being applied like this. You, you talk about someone being courageous who is that daredevil type, right? You know, that kid on my block when I was growing up who would get on his bike and he would ride the bike off of any ramp in the neighborhood. Didn't matter how many times he broke his arm, he would just keep going and going. He felt no fear. On the other end of the spectrum, you also hear people talking about courage in the sense of that person doesn't care what anyone else thinks about them. They just do what they want to do. I got to tell you, neither of those has anything to do with courage. One is reckless. The other is proud. That is not a virtue. No, if anything, courage contends with fear. John Piper said it like this. He said, courage is not the absence of fear, but the refusal to let it control you. Do you know that fear is actually an emotional response that we're supposed to feel? (laughs) Fear helps me manage risk. It does. I walk up to something, I feel a sense of apprehension, and then I just begin to weigh a decision whether or not I should be engaging with this. We're going through this right now with a global pandemic. People are feeling different levels of fear with regard to the virus, whether it's upticking, whether people are wearing masks, whether they're taking safety and security procedures seriously. Uh, Fear, though, is never meant to dominate all of your decision-making. Why? Because we always have to take risk in life. There's no part of life that doesn't involve some level of risk. Every time I get into a car, I'm engaging in some risk. Every time I enter into a new relationship with a person, risk is involved. So fear is the biblical virtue where I say to myself, I'm going to be wise in the way that I deal with the world, but at the same time, I'm not going to allow fear to dominate my life. Now remember, when I was a young pastor, a youth pastor, that I dealt with fear quite a bit. 
If you knew me in this time, you, you may not have known that I was struggling with this, but I really was. Some of it had to do with allowing situations to fester. If you ever done that, you let a situation fester. You know that confrontation is necessary, that there's a relationship that's not right, or a person who's kind of getting outside of the realm of the boundaries, and you've got to go have that conversation. And every time that would happen, I would just not pick up the phone. I wouldn't schedule the coffee appointment for a couple of weeks because I was afraid that if I had the conversation, that person would no longer like me. Or maybe you've dealt with this side of fear. Have you ever heard of imposter syndrome? It's that fear that you're in the work world or maybe some position of responsibility of leadership, and you're afraid that either other people are going to look at you and think that you're not competent enough for the position or that somehow you made it to that next level too far for yourself and you're never going to measure up. Both of those fears that I was dealing with, the Bible calls the fear of man. That's what it is. Now, I was on a camp uh, trip. I went to California with my wife. We were on a marriage retreat. I think I've shared this story before. Uh, But on this marriage retreat, they had a bunch of high-adventure, high-risk activities, which I don't quite understand how those two things correlate, marriage and high-risk activities, but they did for whatever reason here. And I have this serious fear of heights. When I get up into a high place, I start shaking really bad. One of the challenges was called the 757 Challenge. What you had to do is you had to climb this telephone pole that was 50 feet in the air. Once you got up to the top of the telephone pole, you stood on this 12-inch by 12-inch platform. Now, I mind you, it was very safe because I was belayed in by a college student down there. So you're standing on top of this platform, and your next step is to jump as hard as you can at this trapeze bar that is seven feet away and seven feet up. I remember I'm climbing the pole, and I start having this conversation with God in my mind, which can happen at these moments. And he was saying to me something really crystal clear. He was saying, look, you're terrified right now. But you don't want people to think that you're a sissy, so you keep climbing up this pole. Don't you realize that you can feel fear and yet keep going? And, and then I started thinking about that phone call that was waiting for me back home that I'd been deferring. And God said, look, if you can push through this, you can push through that. And it was there on that pole that I told the Lord that I would start being more courageous in ministry because the things that he had called me to were far too important to let them die due to fear. What are you afraid of? Do you know the enemy has many tools in his tool belt? He's a liar. He likes to make you feel jealous of other people, look sideways and compare yourself to them. One of his greatest tools in his tool belt is fear. Satan attacks you with fear because he wants to kill those Jesus-saturated 
Bible-saturated, society-influencing dreams that God has put on your heart, those dreams that we know that in God's power and in God's strength, we can do far more and exceedingly beyond anything we can ask, think, or imagine. The enemy wants more than anything for you, the believer, or for us, the church, to be sidelined when it comes to those dreams because he knows that those are the kind of dreams that advance the kingdom of God in the world. Well, David, or Daniel, he didn't allow that fear to stifle what God was calling him to do. So listen to what he says to the king. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples and nations and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened, so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne, and his glory was taken from him. Let's jump to verse 22. And you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all of this but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. So courageously, he looks the king in the eyes and says, you have not learned from history. If anything, you've intensified your father's sin by committing blasphemy. And then he gives him God's decree. Look at verse 25. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you've been weighed in the balance and found wanting. Peres, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Now, the language in those words is Aramaic, so these wise men could have interpreted this. But Many scholars believe that it was written in scripta continua, meaning that all of the letters were mashed together. And so it was just a bunch of babble, and Daniel, because of his spiritual wisdom from God, was able to unravel the mess. Uh, one Jewish rabbi makes this incredible connection. He says that we should see a connection to the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11, which associates the beginning of Babylon with the confusion of language. And Daniel 5, which associates the end of Babylon with the confusion of language. Isn't that incredible? Our God is so sovereign. He's the God of history, the God of salvation, that he can allude to something precedes the days of Moses, and then Moses writes about it, and then in the days of Daniel, he can kind of finalize the point and say this, Babylon is a confused, corrupt society. And from beginning to end, God will deal with corruption because he's a righteous judge. And indeed, all through history, he pronounced this he even named the Persian ruler who would come in and take over in the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah 50, 45, 1, the text says, Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him, that the gates may not be closed. 
Now, some scholars try to treat this with circular reasoning, and they say, well, this couldn't have been written before Daniel because it's too accurate. It knows the name of the king. But that's the point. God's sovereign. He can name the ruler that's going to come in hundreds of years before it happens. And he didn't just talk about the fall of Babylon in Isaiah. He also talked about it through the prophet Jeremiah. Again, during a time when no one could conceive of Babylon falling. Jeremiah 55, 55. For the Lord is laying Babylon waste and stilling her mighty voice. You know what's incredible in all of this? Is how in Daniel chapter 5, those last verses, God treats the fulfillment of this prophecy as an afterthought. Do you know how many verses in Daniel and all of the Bible speak about Babylon conquering Persia in the actual like biographical fashion? How many? Three. Like one of the greatest takeovers in world history, three verses. An afterthought, the kind of thing that if we were living in that time, it would be all over the headlines of the newspapers. It would have been talked about for months and weeks and years. Three verses. Why? Because God's so sovereign. He's like, I already talked about all of that. It was just hundreds of years prior, and now it's happened. Because when I say something, it will happen. That's how sovereign our God is. So what does that mean for us? is we're dealing with and contending with issues of righteousness and injustice in the world. I don't know about you, but sometimes I, I look out at the world and I see a pretty dark place I, at the large scale. I know there's things like human trafficking that are happening and, and, and people who are suffering with, with drug addictions and, and, and crime and just so many things that, that I look out at and I say I feel hopeless when I look at these things. Or even in your personal world where you've been treated unfairly and you know you've been treated unfairly. What do we learn from Daniel 5? What do we learn from Daniel when it comes to those issues? Well, the big idea is this, that good faith entrusts matters of justice to God. Do you know, it's not in our job description as people to even the score. Vengeance falls on one job description, God's, and God's alone. It is not my job to get even. Now think about Daniel's story. Daniel is a youth. He's ripped away from his land. He's marched 900 miles. He finds out later that they came in and they reduced the place to rubble. Do you think that maybe Daniel ever dreamed about getting vengeance? So why doesn't he? Well, much like Joseph, Daniel believed in a big God. You see, if we take matters into our own hands, we get temporary satisfaction, temporary vengeance. But when we leave it and entrust it to God, we receive eternal justice, eternal satisfaction. When I take matters in my own hands, I short-circuit the process. But when God's justice is exacted when he brings about resolution, we're all going to look at those situations and say, that's right. That's fair. 
that's exactly how that situation should have been handled. We're not going to be walking away from the courtroom and think to ourselves, well, that lawyer was really slick, and they pulled out that exception clause, and they were able to mastermind it in such a way to where real justice was thwarted today. No one's going to say that. It's going to be crystal clear in our minds that God's way is right. So then the next time you feel sidelined or even abused, remember God's in control. It's not your job to fix it. It's your job to exercise good faith. And as we close down, I want to read to you a letter that a father wrote to his son. It's in that book I've mentioned it a couple of times, Good Faith, by David Kinnaman and Gabe Lyons. And one of the authors was sharing about a time that his son was going through at school, and it involved a really sensitive matter that requires all of the elements of good faith, love, believe, live. The boy came home from school one day, and he was really distressed. His mom asked him what had happened, and she said, well, all the kids at school are saying that I don't like gay people. Mom's shocked, and we all kind of get that. Today, that's a very sensitive topic. And she said, what happened? The boy said, well, I was in a class, and one of my friends, one of the girls, said that she had a crush on another girl. And then I just said to her, I don't think that's right. I think that's wrong. And so it started circling around the school, and after school, the girl came up to the young boy, and she said, why don't you like gay people? And he said, I don't dislike anyone. I just believe in God's law. Well, the mom was pretty upset after hearing about the conversation, so she calls the dad. And the dad's away on a business trip, and he has a phone call with the son. But he decides that this was a powerful teaching moment to teach his son how to think like Daniel in a countercultural way. And so he wrote him this letter, and I'd like you to listen to it. He says, Pierce... Son, I'm so very proud of you. First, today you showed conviction and boldness to state your opinion on how God uniquely designed boys and girls differently. You can't expect that all the other kids will feel the same way. In fact, many of them have been told by their parents that boys liking boys and girls liking girls is okay even to be celebrated. When you say being gay is wrong, they are very offended because they've been taught to believe anyone who thinks being gay is wrong is a bad person. Remember how we've talked about the world being upside down? What's right is often thought to be wrong. What's wrong is made to seem right. This is a perfect example of that happening. It's okay, though. Part of being a Christian is recognizing that we live by a different set of rules than many other people around us. We trust God's words in the Bible and the life of Jesus, even if they don't make sense to others. Now, when you hear people say their opinion, even if you disagree with them, you must always respect them. Jesus says that the first and greatest commandment is to love God with all of your heart. And the second is to love your neighbor as thyself. You scored 100% on the first commandment, and maybe a 75 on the second. Which brings me to the next important point. Second, as a Christian, 
Showing love to all people, even if you disagree with their opinion, is critical for you. Pierce, loving your neighbor means being a good friend, even when they say something with which you disagree. Otherwise, they will think that you don't care about them or that you think you are better than them. Tomorrow, when you go to school, friends may approach you. If someone says to you, we don't, or why don't you like gay people, Pierce, you could respond by sharing your heart the way you did with me tonight. I never said that I don't like gay people. I love all people. I believe God made our world so that boys would like girls and, and girls would like boys. I know you may disagree, and I respect that, but that is my honest opinion. Pierce, be prepared that not only students, but even teachers may disagree with you. And that's okay, because Jesus tells us that people who don't know him will be confused about what is good. You need to understand this as an example of a spiritual battle you are facing. It requires courage to follow Jesus in a culture that does not. You can trust that God's word is true. I, I wish I could be with you and give you a hug right now. Instead, I'll pray courage for you tonight as you drift off to sleep. God is with you. He loves you and all your friends at school so much. Sometimes it feels lonely to stand up for what you believe, but you are not alone. I love you, Dad. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we do come to you today as a people in complete and total reliance upon you. We recognize that you have called us to be a people who are in the world, but not of the world. Well, what does that entail, Lord? Well, in some ways, culture tells us to assimilate. We know we can't do that. But we can be a part of this world and love it and, and hold to the truth by believing the truth and living out that truth, being like that paint on the invisible man where people see the love and light of Jesus through us, Lord. I pray for our kids in particular today, Lord, how difficult it is to be a Daniel in this culture, to think that sometimes the culture wars are being waged right at the level of six-year-olds and 10-year-olds and 15-year-olds, Lord. We ask you would protect them. And we ask, Lord, that you would build faith in their hearts. And we know, Lord, as their church family, that they always have a place where they're safe and loved here. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.